Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to look at the whole chapter tonight. One day, a man called a church on the phone and the church secretary answered and the man said, I would like to speak to the head hog of the trough. The secretary said, what did you say? And he repeated himself, I would like to speak to the head hog of the trough. And she said, if you meant the pastor, it would be more appropriate to say, I want to speak to the pastor. He said, well, I, I wanted to give the church $25,000. So, And she said, hold on, I see the big pig coming down the hall right now. <laughs> I tell you what. Uh, the way people respond to money... You know, money doesn't respond to us the way we want it to because there's this deception that, that people over and over think that it satisfies. And it doesn't satisfy. And we've already talked about this in Ecclesiastes. We've talked about it on a few different occasions. And yet God would have rich Solomon bring up again the warnings about the love of riches. God gave him direction to warn us yet again about the danger and the deception that can take place with these good gifts that God gives us. Money's not evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. There, God gives it. Now, He gives some more than others, and for good reason, in His own reasoning, of course. And it can be used in good ways. But there's definitely a warning with it. And we all need it. We need it over and over. God means them for good. Money can be used for good. But Satan loves to place temptation before us that the good might be hid. You know, if you take a penny and you hold it close enough to your eye, you can completely block out the sun. And for anyone to have such a, a great desire and focus for, for money, it'll block out all the good that God wants to do with it. So that's what we're going to see in the first two verses as we get started as Solomon brings up the subject again. We're going to look at the calamity of cash and that it's common. Chapter 6 verse 1 says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity. It is an evil disease. There is a deep longing 
and a desire for wealth, but it fails to do what is desired for it to do. It disappoints us. That, and that failure is that it doesn't fulfill us. It does not do that. Solomon has an education on this. Solomon has various and numerous experiences with this and what he's telling us. God used him to tell us this after his experience. Yet with all the evidence and the testimony year after year and time after time with things that people say about it and what Solomon has said about it here of its ability to ruin, the thought wants to come over the mind that, well, that wouldn't pertain to me. I'm a different person from Solomon. I have different circumstances from Solomon. That won't happen to me. But this is not just a specific warning to a few. This is a a general warning to all uh, about what wealth could possibly do by way of ruin. People thought that in Solomon's day that it didn't pertain to them, and they think it today. So he continues to repeat what cash lacks to do. That people are going to try to depend upon it to do. There's always the temptation to seek silver that it might satisfy, but it does not. So the calamity of cash is is common, we see. But as we look in verse 3, let's go to something else that does not guarantee satisfaction. The concept of a crowd of children. Verse 3, If a man beget an hundred children, let's just stop right there. <laughs> let, me, let me just say, you know, I, I always wanted to be a part of a big family. I've never had... I never had a big family, and then I married Shelly, and, and the family grew because I had two families, but her family was bigger than mine, and, and so I had somewhat of a bigger family. I wanted an even bigger family. I love hearing about these 100 and 200 people in one family at a family reunion. I've never had that, but I, I just can't cry over it too much because we find here that it doesn't satisfy Let me say this though, the 127th Psalm in the third verse says, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. Children are a blessing. Many children are a great blessing. People clearly saw that in in this day that Solomon's writing, that if you had a lot of children, you were no doubt blessed by the Lord. People should still think that today. I don't, I don't, some people think different things. There, there is an ungodly view out there. There's an ungodly message that's going out today that says, don't have children, they'll burden your life. Go do what you want instead of having children. You know, some, some can't have children. Maybe some uh, just won't have children. But to not have children for the sake of 
our own lives and what we want to do with them and that it would be a burden to raise children. Well, that's just ludicrous. That's not a spiritual thought. But let me say this, as far as a point we're going to get to here, and that is a lot of children doesn't guarantee one of satisfaction. Riches do not. A lot of children do not, do not guarantee that. Let's look, let's continue though now in the constant cycle in the corruptible. If a man beget a hundred children and, how about this, live many years so that the days of his years be many and his soul be not filled with good and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. Let us remember that, that he is speaking things from a natural point of view in a lot of cases here. And, and it's, not, it's not right. It's not good. You know, but what we do learn here is that a long life also does not mean a satisfied life. Man, I just want 90 years. I know a man that prayed for 100 years, and he got it. I don't know if that's good or not. I don't know that I'm going to pray for something like that. A long life doesn't mean a satisfied life, where it says in the verse there, not filled with good, that means that he's speaking of one who is not satisfied. Just because one has a long life doesn't mean they're going to have a content life. And it'll just get worse and worse the longer it goes. Not only is one not satisfied with life, but it says that they have no burial. That was an extreme dishonor that someone wouldn't even have a burial. And that was obviously something that disturbed Solomon. You know, a long life can mean more suffering. It can mean more displeasure. So Solomon says here, from, from man under the sun point of view, natural point of view, that an untimely birth is better than he. An untimely birth is better, he says, than someone who has lived a very long life and, and maybe had a, a big family. It, it would be better if he not even be born. Un, untimely birth, that speaks of a stillborn child. And Solomon's saying that's a better situation to be in than to have an unsatisfied life. As I, as I try to close with that point and, and go to another point, let me just end with Jesus satisfies and He will satisfy anyone He brings into this world. Anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ can have a satisfied life. Let, let us see the severity of an unsatisfied life. What we have talked about so much is how Solomon went out in the world and he saw that the things of the world and the carnal things out there and the temporary pleasures and the, the wine, women, wealth, none of that satisfied and someone might say, well, I hear you, but I'm just going to go have my temporary pleasure. And it's, he's not, there's not just a statement here that it doesn't satisfy, 
But it's very dangerous to live an unsatisfied life. It leads to more and more sin. And so in this state Solomon's in, let's go to coveting the conceived child in verses 4 through 6. He says, For he cometh in with vanity, and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place." So there's the unsatisfied rich man who lives a long life, has a big family, and there's the unborn child. And the unborn child goes straight from the womb to heaven and does not enter this sinful world, does not face and experience and deal with temptation, but straight to glory from the belly. This is the man under the sun's point of view that that looks good compared to the troubles of this life. And that's not a good point of view at all. A life of faith, coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ growing in faith in a relationship with Him, finding success in life by learning what God's will is for us and doing His will in our lives is a life of victory. And it's worth all the sin and the struggle that we have to go through on this earth. It's God's plan that He put us here, and He put us here on this earth as it is, and He's going to show His greatness through us and give us a good, satisfied life in Him. If one does not have a life of contentment in Jesus Christ, they're going to be tempted to covet the conceived child that goes straight to glory. And by the way, of course, if I need I don't think I need to clear this up for one person here. This isn't saying anything uh, about it being okay at all to murder a child in the womb, but unfortunately some children uh do pass before they are born, a stillborn child, and that that might not have been necessary, but you never know who's listening in that that needs to be cleared up for. But there's going to be a, tempt, uh, a temptation to, to covet that. The one who doesn't have to come face to face with this world. After someone faces this world without Christ, without walking with Christ, and dealing with the things of life, and trying to be satisfied in all the wrong places, and experiencing the depression and the disappointment that brings, that will lead someone to think, Something such as this. The longer the seriousness of an unsatisfied life, the longer someone lives an unsatisfied life, the worse it gets. And again, it's Jesus Christ 
who satisfies. It's only Him. Nothing else will. Let's look at the countless cravings with no contentment in verses 7 and 8 though. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? The more one does for self, the more attention someone focuses on themselves. The plan for themselves going forward, only for themselves, the less satisfied that person is going to be. A self-centered attitude is never going to be a satisfied soul within. I mean, of course, we're to be responsible. We're we're to be responsible with the duties, with the obligations we've been given in life. We have families to take care of. We have things that we need to do. We need to fulfill our responsibilities, no doubt. And and, and we need to do some planning for our future, uh, you know, in a sense. And it's responsible to do so. There's no doubt about it. But an entirely self-centered focus does not give contentment. It's a, a selfish heart is opposite of a servant's heart. And a servant is going to serve someone else. I do understand that we, we've got to, to see after our own needs and trust the Lord to help us to do what we can and, and our needs being met. Ultimately, it's all from Him, but He has us do things. He has us to be aware of our needs. But I'll never forget a statement I heard a preacher make, and he said, having our needs met is a byproduct of first meeting the needs of someone else. And there is something to consider in that statement, how God blesses us when we serve Him. How do, how do we serve God? He has everything He needs. We serve God by serving someone else, by being a blessing to someone else. There is no doubt that God, we don't do it for this reason, but God is going to bless the one who is helping and concerned about the needs of another, of someone else. That's a servant's heart. And God blesses that. There's something to be said about the satisfaction of meeting the needs of others, of doing for someone else. I remember a long time ago I shared this verse, and I talked about, I would say all the things I got as a kid for Christmas, but the way, the way parents give kids gifts today, uh, I was abused in, in their minds probably with two, I remember one year I had like seven presents, and I couldn't believe I had that many presents, it was usually two or three, and I think about those things that were given to me. And I don't know what came over me, but I had me a little lawn mowing business in junior high, and, and it was Mother's Day. And I remembered my dad over and over, I'm not getting you anything for Mother's Day, Polly. You're not my mother. And, and I, she didn't get anything, you know. I mean, I told her, Happy Mother's Day, love you, and things like that. But I finally got on my bike, and I rode down to Maud's Florist, and I, 
and with my, with my yard mowing money, and I bought my mom some flowers. I knew she would kill live ones. I remember, I mean, I must have been 11. I bought silk flowers for my mom. And Maud said, do you want me to deliver it for you? I was like, wow, that would be great. Sure, I can't ride home on my bike with it. And, and she delivered it. And since she lived in the neighborhood, she brought it Mother's Day morning. And, and my mom's reaction to what I gave her versus everything that, that I was given, I tell you what, that is priceless right there. You know, all that stuff didn't bring contentment to me, but, but that was a blessing to be able to give. And, well, countless cravings with no contentment. Maybe we should crave to be givers more than receivers. You know, the wise man and, and the foolish man we find in these verses here, they have souls of, uh, goals of self-gratification and neither ever get to it. And they, ne- they never achieve it. And they never have any satisfaction. It, sat, being satisfied can't be done in our own determination. You notice in verse 7 the word appetite here. And yet the appetite is not filled. And that word for appetite... the Appetite means soul here, your soul. You know, what we are is what we are in our soul. For, for our soul to be satisfied, only God can touch that. Only God can give contentment in the soul. Only God satisfies. But as we continue on, let us look in verse 9. And it says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. How about this? Content with what is current is the cure. Content with what we have. I was riding down the road with a teenager about a year ago, and, and I knew their life, and I knew their situation, and I knew their their work and their college and their plans and where they were financially just because I know them well. And we're riding down the road in his wore-out old truck and he, and he pointed to a new truck going down the road. It was about a $60,000 truck and he said, that's what I want. I said, that's not what you need right now. I said, look around this truck right here. It's paid for and it's running. This is reality That's a dream. Don't keep your focus on your dreams. Be thankful for what you have right now. This is suitable and this is fitting right now. If we are not satisfied with what we have right now, if we got everything on our list that hopefully we're not focused on, if we just made a list of everything we want, we wouldn't be satisfied when we got that. If we can't be satisfied with what we have right now. I, I hope you're blessed. I hope you get this or that. I hope you get the desires of your heart in different ways. And, and I hope I do too. But... But if we're not satisfied now where we are, before we get those, we're not going to be satisfied then. Things don't satisfy. They, they, they don't do it. They don't do it. It's better to focus on what we have than what we don't have. There's not a natural ability to be content 
with what's current, but there's a spiritual ability to be content. All of this is going to come down to the Lord and what the Lord does in the life of a soul. He makes us content when we walk with Him. Let's look at verse 10 at a carnal campaign for control. This verse just blew my mind when I first read it. And, and I'm not about to tell you I know everything about it. But we can, we can hit the highlights of what is being said here. That which hath been is named already. And it is known that it is man. Okay, so man has been named. Neither may he, man, contend with him that is mightier than he. God named man. God made man. God loves man. God's given man commands. God has given man a will. And what has man done? Man rebels against God. Man has always wanted to be God. Man has always wanted to tune out God's plan. Man wants to undo what God has done. It will never happen. I can't think of a, of a more absolute waste of time than to fight with God. With God. It's the worst waste of time that could ever be done. Yet man has always done it. And Satan just dresses up things in different ways. It's the same old thing, but he gets it, gives it a different, uh, a different little facelift every generation, and man keeps falling for the same old thing and, and quarrels with God. God's control has been challenged over and over by man when all that has to happen is it be trusted. Trust God's control. God is in control. Trust His control. It's as simply as that. You know, can we imagine being God for one hour? If we, were, if we imagine being God for one hour, and if we're honest, we make a mess out of things. And it would scare us to death at the thought of being God for just an hour. What a terrible disaster that can be. No one can be satisfied without submitting to God's complete control. Verses 11 and 12, and we'll close. The Creator considers our course. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life, all the days of his life, of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? There are many things trying to pull us in many different directions, and it's creating emptiness. It'll create emptiness. That's what vanity means, emptiness in the life. And I'm, going to, I'm not going to name those things because Solomon doesn't name those things. I don't know what all he, he means here. What does he, what does he say here? Uh, 
seeing there be many things that increase vanity. We can individually think of a lot of those things in ourselves that that may seem fun and, and seem tempting, but it's just empty when it's done. We're not smart enough to know on our own what is good for us or how to defend from those things that are bad for us. That If we could just get ourselves out of the way and realize the dependence that, that God knows that we need to have on Him, if we could realize that, you know, people used to pray for the preacher before he preaches and, and say, hide him behind the cross and just, just use him. If we realized how needy we were of God, that would be a great thing because we do not know what is best for us. It doesn't matter how smart we are. It doesn't matter how foolish we are. We do not know what is best for us. We don't know how things will turn out. Everybody can agree with that. I, I hear your amen, your silent amens on that one. We don't know how things are going to turn out. But God does. God considers our entire course. He sees the entire course. He knows what's good for us. We must be careful and prayerful in all that we do. The smallest things... That we, that we think are good for us because they may be bad for us. People we think are good for us, they may be bad for us. Things maybe we think are good for us, but they may be bad. A preacher told a story about he and his sister growing up uh, close to the same age as teenagers. And, and they both attended church. And... And they both got offered a job. I guess it was a family thing. Somebody knew the family. So, so the boy and the girl, teenagers, got offered a job. And, and I'm talking about years ago. And 12 or $13 an hour for a teenager to make on a job, that was gigantic. And, and, and something told the, the boy that he, that he shouldn't do that. It, you, you have to work on Sunday, all day long, every Sunday. And, and he had something going on in his heart that he just shouldn't do it. His sister did. He kept going to church. He got saved. He became a preacher. God's blessed his life. She worked on Sundays. Who did she work with on Sundays? People who didn't go to church because they were working. Who did she hang out with after work? Those people. I don't ever know of her making a profession of faith in Christ, and she's lived a pretty miserable life by testimony. I don't know who she is. I just heard the testimony. Her own brother, who loves her dearly, gave that testimony that she suffered, and she has, she has diseases, and she has problems in her life. And, and that one decision was quite a fork in the road that sent them in two different directions, and and, and he, he was being drawn by God, obviously, and he, and he got saved. God knows what is best for us. God has what is good for every single one of us. We don't have the might 
or the mind to arrange our lives properly. But God has both. We would hurt ourselves and we would hurt others with our own decisions that we would make. And when we believe that, then we want God to control our lives. We want God to control our lives. A man's not able to order his own steps. They're of the Lord, the Bible says. When we submit to God's control, we find contentment. We find contentment in Him. When we are walking in God's will submitted to Him, everything that we come across in life, conflict, problems, we're able to put it on His shoulders because we're walking in His will. There's some peace. There's some satisfaction in that. Can we simply close by saying that Jesus has the answer and that Jesus is the answer? I read a, I read a devotion this week and had a few, few rhyming statements in it, and I'll just close with that. It says, When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory, for all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. Amen. He gives contentment and He gives comfort. Uh, We're going to close in prayer. God bless you all. Please remember one another. Pray for Mary Alice. and, And I'm going to ask Jeff Smith if he will close our Bible study in a word of prayer.